Blog Talk Radio. Grounds. We've got Graham Burns coming up. Uh, we've got a big show for you. We've uh, a director, uh, Adam Dici, who directed No No, a documentary, a documentary film about uh, famous famed uh, Pittsburgh Pirates and for many other teams. Pitcher Doc Ellis. He, of course, is uh, now known for uh, famously pitching a no hitter in 1970. Jack Murphy Stadium against the Padres, as he claimed uh, we was under the influence of LSD. We got uh, and we'll speak with the director. Uh, I watched this documentary that uh, opened today in select theaters. It was at the Sundance Film Festival back in January. Uh, you can check out where it is uh, uh, theaters near you at the website no no documentary dot com. Now, note that Doc is spelled like Doc Ellis, so it's a D-O-C-K humanity. We also got some, uh, it's also the Phonetic Radio NFL preview. Me and uh, Graham and me will look at uh, the opening game last night with the Seattle Seahawks smoked the Green Bay Packers as they start their Super Bowl, looking to be the first team to repeat in about a decade now. And also aim to be the first Super Bowl defending champion to win a playoff game, no less, in about eight years since the Patriots did it way back in 2005. We also have our weekly conversation coming up. Kendra Levesque, who was the first ever female to win the King of Swat home run derby at Dreams Park in Cooperstown, home of the Baseball Hall of Fame. She was also an all-star in the Sunset Little League in New Mexico. And we'll talk about college football as well. If you want to join us, we calling for you out there. 646-595-3137. Got Mr. DiRudici coming up. We want to announce a new sponsorship for Fanatic Radio. Uh, 1-800-Flowers, 1-800-1-800-Flowers.com. So we've got uh, our guest. Coming in right here. We actually have people on the line right now. But here we are joined by the director of No No, a documentary in select theaters now, uh, Adam Radici. Adam, how are you? Thank you for coming on to Connect Radio. Jeffrey, sorry, I, I apologize. My name is. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I got, I got you confused. Pardon me. Well, that's understandable. You know, you got Adam Horvitz, this, this super mega music that's star. That's right. right. Did the soundtrack for the film, so uh, you know I get it. <laughs> it's great yeah, to be talking me. You. Uh, uh, well, thank you for coming on. Congrats on the documentary. I uh, watched it. It really is a, a really a tremendous 
portrait of a guy that, you know, when everyone thinks of Doc Ellis, they think of the 1970 no-hitter against the Padres. Uh, while he, uh, he claims he was under the influence of LSD, but in, as the film really shows, and of course it's in theaters opening today, uh, it really shows a, a portrait of a man who is much more than that. He, of course, was a great pitcher and with those uh, those great uh, Pittsburgh Pirates teams at the 1971 All-Star Game where he started against Mike Blue. So what uh, compelled you to make a, such a film about Doc Ellis? Well, you know, so let me start by by discussing the the no hitter because I think that Doc, you know, Doc was probably known mostly for the uh, in the recent past, you know, mostly for this no hitter and and you know his claims of of taking LSD and I I read his biography, one of the one of the most literate. Um, Biographies you'll ever find about an athlete, written by Donald Hall, who was a, a, a poet, and um, I, I felt like there was a lot of substance to Doc. And the, as I investigated and found out, you know, not only was he an excellent pitcher, but an, an extremely intelligent athlete. And uh, you know, the story to me is it's a recovery story. It's a hero's journey where he kind of went off the path and, and had some extremely dark episodes in his life that we do not gloss over. And his redemption and recovery are really what make the story compelling to me as a storyteller. What what would you say was uh, perhaps the hardest thing to betray throughout the film? Well, the hardest thing to do was to to be true to who Doc was. You know, I didn't, it's an incredibly difficult task to take, somebody's life and um, put it in, into film in any capacity that you do, whether it's a documentary or a, a biopic. And, you know, I felt like the way that I wanted to do it was to be true to Doc, both to his style and his substance and his honesty and his outspokenness. And, and so adhering to what I started to gather was that the truth about Doc was definitely the most difficult thing because it's easy to cut corners and, and um, you know, over-dramatize or leave, leave things mm-hmm. out, leave, leave the dark episodes out. I didn't want to do that. I wanted, I wanted to see an honest depiction of, of a man's life, or, or, you know, a full portrait, not just a hagiography. You know, what I thought uh, what may have been, certainly there were a number of moving scenes in the film, but I think perhaps the scene that may have been the most uh, moving when uh, when uh, Doc was reading the letter from uh, that Jackie Robinson had written to him, mm-hmm. and then he start and then he broke down in tears. I mean, well, I think a lot of people don't realize about Ellis that he even you see this in the film and he taught, describes himself as such, and other people that describe he really kind of was a big civil rights, uh, you know, a, a flamboyant, a Muhammad Ali type that you really made him such a uh, a unique a figure, especially when you have somebody who's so famous for breaking through the barrier and Jackie Robinson about 25 years before Doc Ellis was in that All-Star game at Tiger Stadium. How do you think that uh, what Doc thought of perhaps his role as being one of the more prominent and certainly one of the more colorful 
uh, African-American players in the game at his time. Well, you, I mean, you, you call out that letter, which is you know, universally uh, considered one of the, the, the great moments in, in No-No. And uh, mm-hmm. this is a letter that Jackie Robinson wrote to Doc Ellis in 1971 after Doc really stirred things up by saying that they would not start a brother against a brother in the All-Star game by the mm-hmm. blue for the American League on the Oakland A's without to a phenomenal start. And so the question really was who was going to be the National League starter. And, you know, Doc was one of uh, a few choices. And he, 14-2, and two, I think, 14 wins at the All-Star game. Uh, his ERA was 2.01 going in. So, I mean, definitely had the numbers. But he pushed the issue and called out the establishment and said, you know, you're not going to do this. And it was a reverse psychology. It was a, it was a master stroke of psychology. And, and uh, back to them into a corner, and Sparky Anderson, who was the National League of, of the, uh, I mean, the manager of the National League team, uh, mm-hmm. chose Doc as the starting pitcher. And, and Jackie Robinson paid attention to the, the media that was going on, and he wrote a personal letter to Doc basically telling him that he really appreciated what Doc was doing, that he wished that there were more athletes who, who would take a stand and voice their opinions, and told him that the, the, the media wouldn't understand what he was up to, that he wouldn't get the accolades that he deserved, and that other players wouldn't have his back. And so in 2008, right before his death, Doc um, mm-hmm. was asked to read the letter. He... Uh, read it and got had an extremely emotional response uh, as he's reading the letter, which we, you know, we I tracked down an original of the letter itself, so it's on screen, and we've got the audio of Doc reading the letter, and, and he just gets more and more emotional because Jackie Robinson was one of his heroes, and you know he felt like you know that was get you know getting that kind of praise from one of his heroes was you know one of the most important moments in his life. And even if it wasn't recognized by anyone else, at least, you know, Jackie got what he was trying to do. And and Doc was out there pushing the envelope uh, for African-American athletes, for athletes in general. You know, he he was the first ball player to have an agent. The guys would go in every year. They'd have to renegotiate their contract. They'd go into the general manager's office and discuss it. And Doc said, well, why can't I have a lawyer represent me? And, and kind of changed the game before free agency. This was, you know, in 1971 when this, this, it came up. So, I mean, Doc was out in front on a lot of issues. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jeff Radici, the uh, director of No No, a documentary. It's opening today. And let's uh, theaters nationwide go to No No a documentary.com, see uh, uh, theater listings near you. Would you say that uh, Doc Ellis, do you think he embraced his role of being kind of this outlandish, a little more colorful ball player than perhaps some of his contemporaries, or do you think he was misunderstood by fans, by the media, and so forth? I would say it's both. You know, he was being, he was being himself, uh, as stated in the, in the film by... Um, I think he missed Cabell. You know, that's just Doc being Doc. Uh, but he 
you know, he was a little misunderstood, but he played it up, too, you know. He said that Muhammad Ali explained to him how to game the media and get some additional attention and, you know, in, increase potentially his, um, you know, his paydays or, you know, get get a little bit more out of it. And he was yeah, an intelligent guy, and he understood the system, and he understood how to play the game a lot more than most of the press that was covering him. So he was, you know, kind of uh, playing psychological games. And at the same time, you know, you look at photographs of Doc, and he wore the loudest colors and the biggest collars. And, and you know, he was, that's just who he was. And, you know, one, another thing that I just found to be so fascinating about Jock Ellis is that, and he kind of talks about this uh, very early in the film when he was talking about the no-hitter. He said, he said that, uh, you know, he had never pitched without you being under the influence of drugs. And so to him, being on LSD was not uh, a, yeah, that big of a hindrance to him. Uh, when he pitched that no-hitter in 1970. And then what I thought was so interesting uh, about Ellis was that he became such uh, an advocate after he retired, after he was able to work on, actually beat uh, his issues with alcohol, drugs, amphetamines, and that he became a counselor uh, later in life until he died uh, almost six years ago now. How do you think he uh, was, went from being somebody that was so uh, had the substance abuse issues when he was a player, and then was able to become uh, not only get past that, but to try and help others do that after his uh, playing days? Well, you know, he was he went 100 percent after everything, and so when he was using drugs as an athlete, he was trying to outdo everyone. He said he would try to out-milligram every opponent. And, you know, taking speed was something that most ballplayers were doing in the 70s, and it doesn't get talked about so much. But greenies were part of the game. And, and, you know, Doc went through a really dark uh, episode that's, you know, his his wife at the time, Austin, describes in the film. And uh, I think that it took something like that to, to really cha- force him to make some changes. And, and uh, once he went through the, the counseling and, and uh, admitted that he had a problem, he wanted to talk about it. And I think that's how the LSD no-hitter got out there. Doc, was, as part of his own recovery, was talking about that and talking about always being on amphetamines for every game and uh, was working in baseball, and then he started working in uh, the trenches in the California prison system, but you can look back at his career when he was with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He would go to a prison near Pittsburgh and uh, worked on this uh, program called Operation Grubstick. So there were there were glimpses. You know, he was working with Willie Stargell on the Sickle Cell Foundation, and he was, he was always trying to give back a little, and I think that after he removed the alcohol abuse and the substance abuse from his life, it gave him a platform and, it gave, and, and a recognition that he expanded upon and, he, and became you know, more fully realized in who he was. And, and his openness and his honesty were, were always there, I feel. And, you know, so he was able to take it to another level in that direction 
and, and you know, talk about what happened to him and, and, and relate and get through to people that were struggling. And, and, and he turned not only his own life around, but he turned other people's lives around as well. And, you know, uh, and what, what made the film so unique and such a really uh, very, uh, almost like a really fascinating and a fun ride is that you have uh, the tremendous soundtrack from Adam Horvitz, famously known as Ad Rock and the Beastie Boys. You've got, uh, you know, it's a little, some animation, some manipulated film uh, photography. And it really, but it all kind of keeps following this track of Jock Ellis and who he was. But when you were making the film, what was one thing, and I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, that kind of took you by surprise, maybe you didn't know about Jock Ellis going in that you know now? Well, you know, I'll, I'll point out one episode that gets depicted in the film in an animated style. Uh, but my goal in making the film and, and you know, the, the choice of the, the soundtrack and, and the animation and the, the, the fast pace of it, you know, not only to embrace Doc's style, but also I wanted this film to be relatable to younger audience who may, you know, not not be willing to sit through a traditional talking head style documentary, but, you know, I wanted, I wanted people that are high school and college age where they can change the course of their life in paying attention to what Doc had to say about fear and addiction uh, to, be, to be able to relate to the story in a way that I don't think that they could relate to, you know, a PBS style dry documentary. And so... You know, that, I went in knowing that. And when we went to Pittsburgh and interviewed his teammates from the 71 uh, championship Pirates team, we asked them what their favorite doc story was. And I hadn't known that he and Muhammad Ali shadow boxed in, in the clubhouse. And they, mm. they, they informed me that this was, you know, almost to a man. They all said, oh, my favorite story. And then, and then they told it. And I, I didn't know anything about it. And I couldn't find any real evidence of it. We got one photograph of Bob Robertson, the first baseman on the team, uh, with Ollie, and that's it. And so I had to uh, deploy other techniques to fill in the gaps because I thought that it was a great story. It, it showed in a tangible way how Doc Ellis and Muhammad Ali were cut from the same cloth. And so I, I got Kevin John, who's an uh, illustrator of athletes to to do some um, original drawings, and then we, we animated it. And we kind of put that sequence to uh, a little, you know, stylized animation. And, and uh, But I didn't know anything about that story going in. And, and uh, you know, it was a fun fun thing that we were able to do. All right. The film is No-No, a documentary. It's in select theaters today. You can go to no-no-a-documentary.com to see your local theater listings. The film was directed by Jeff Radici. And, Jeff, thank you very much for coming on for Fanatic Radio. Congratulations on the film. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, letting me let me talk a little bit. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no problem. It's a great story, and uh, we thank you very much for coming on. All right, and I uh, and I encourage you all to check out. Go to No No a documentary. Of course, Doc spelled like Doc Ellis, D O C K. Uh, dot uh, documentary dot com. It really is a fascinating film, 
And for and someone like me, a longtime baseball fan, especially when I was a kid, a big fan of the history of the game, and the Doc Ellis LSD story really has taken on a life of its own. But you watch this film, and I encourage you all to watch baseball fans and whatnot. Uh, it really is just a very fascinating portrayal of a man that was just much more than that story of what she is known for. So we're going to take a little... Uh, we're going to take a little 180 to talk a little football. The NFL season is back. It started last night. CenturyLink Field, the Seattle Seahawks, who, of course, won the Super Bowl in the mails by dominating the Denver Broncos, hosting the Green Bay Packers. And they came out with a dominant opening win performance over the Packers. The Packers, for much of the game, they couldn't really run the ball. Aaron Rodgers, perhaps the best, still the best quarterback in the NFL, uh, couldn't do that much. Couldn't do, uh, was a, was not able to get uh, much uh, much uh, passing game action down the field. And the Seattle Seahawks, especially Marshawn Lynch, was able to run the ball very well. The defense looked strong, and the Packers, you know, in a road environment that may be perhaps the toughest road environment in the NFL, one that you saw the Saints last year just get demolished twice. So I think the, you look at the Seahawks, it, of course, is very tough for any team to go back-to-back Super Bowl champions. The reason why it hasn't happened in a decade. And for whatever reason, you haven't even had a playoff game, a uh, Super Bowl team the next year with a playoff game since the Patriots in 2005. So, but you look at this team, especially now when you, they have a healthy first year and he was tremendous last night. They ran him on a bunch of jet sweeps in motion. It's, very, it's a very college-style spread option, spread offense kind of play of the jet sweep with the receiver coming from the outside. He was tremendous. And now if they can get the vertical passing game, they bounce off of the running game with Marshawn Lynch, and of course a tremendous secondary. This is a team now you don't want to overreact to one game. It could very well be in the sh- get a shot, get back to Super Bowl this year in Glendale, Arizona, University of Phoenix Stadium, and if they can get a home field advantage, it's going to be very tough to go in for Seattle to any team into Seattle and take them out. As we saw, Packers, perhaps a Super Bowl team contenders of their own right, uh, and one team that was definitely looking to get the Super Bowl once again. They haven't been there in a few years. They uh, they went out in a disappointing fashion last year. The England Patriots, Tom Brady. Uh, they got smoked in the AFC Championship game by Peyton Manning and the aforementioned Denver Broncos. And Brady uh, was a little comment about what he expects from the club this year. There's nowhere I'd rather play. I know that, you know. So I, I you know, I love playing for this team and I love representing this team. And and hopefully I can do that for as long as, you know, I can. I mean, I, you know, when I suck, I'll retire. But I don't plan on sucking for a long time. So. Hopefully that leads me to being here, and, and there's no place that I'd rather be. So I just, uh, like I said, I love this game, and I love working hard at it. And, you know, I've had a lot of people over the years tell me the things I couldn't do, and I think that's always been great motivation for me to try to go out there and accomplish things that I think I can do. So um, hopefully it's continue to play at a really high level for a long period of time. And uh, I love that quote there. Uh, when I suck or if I suck, I'll retire. You know, sometimes, uh, a lot of times, a few uh, players, they stay a season too long, lose some of their effectiveness. And, of course, Brady had a bit of a disappointing year last year. Uh, he had a young, inexperienced receiving core. 
It's largely the same this year, and they struggled at times uh, with time and with their receivers. You saw some noticeable frustration last year. But, of course, they reinvented themselves running game with Garrett Blunt, who's now in Pittsburgh. Interesting, they left the starting job to be more or less a backup in New England, but he still has Shane Vereen. Uh got um, Steve Ridley. Uh, so the Patriots and uh, strong team. Of course, you got Bill Belichick. And an AFC, which I don't think beyond, even with the Broncos and all the, what they've done this year, or last year, and what they've done in the free agency, bringing together DeMarcus Ware, uh, people leave and the like. I don't think you're looking at this AFC. I think it's wide open more than perhaps the NFC. I think the NFC has got a select uh, top tier of elite teams, Seattle, New Orleans, um, Packers, 49ers. So I look at the AFC, you have your teams like Denver, New England that are going to be in the mix. Indianapolis, a lot of teams can make, a lot of folks think can make a breakthrough. You got Andrew Luck. One of the rising stars, got solid receiving core. The defense still an issue there, and the NFC in the AFC North is a bit wide open. The Bengals, uh, the Steelers, the Ravens—all those teams really could be in the mix. Maybe Cleveland, if they, you know, if Brian Hoyer or uh, our good friend John Football puts a little action, maybe Cleveland could get in the mix. I don't know. But we'll have more for our NFL predictions. We'll get to that momentarily. We're going to take a music break. We got a music from a great Canadian coming out. You're watching, uh, you are listening, actually. You'll, you'll be watching uh, later on uh, BFO360. You're listening to uh, On Block Talk Radio. Fanatic Radio brought to you by 1 800 Flowers and 1 800 Flowers.com. Fanatic Radio. This show's a joke. It's the reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's cars. Fanatic Radio on Blog Talk Radio. Fanatic Radio is America's premier sports music program. It's an essential part of our society, like hot dogs and Cadillacs. With Mike Gardner and Ben Florence providing unique insight from the wide world of sports. He should just retire so he could dip him in bronze and ship him to the Hall of Fame. Playing only the hottest music. The only thing we ever play on the show is most found in R&D. And always striving for perfection. We're climbing the ladder to success, escalator style. Yes! See for yourself. Check out Fanatic Radio only on Blog Talk Radio. My life. 
Fanatic Radio. I have no decision-making capability on this program. It's the reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's cars. Fanatic Radio on Blog Talk Radio. And we are back here on Fanatic Radio. Uh, welcome back, folks. Ben Florence here with you. Call into the show, 646 595 we got a brand-new segment here uh, for you right here on FR. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Sports History with Eileen Ehrlich. It's going to take us uh, a little segment every week, every edition of the show. A little uh, a little note of bit for all you uh, sports and t- historians and all of you folks that love fun facts like myself. Let's see what Eileen has for today. On September 3rd, 1970, the football community lost a founding father when Vince Lombardi died, shortly after being diagnosed with aggressive colon cancer. Lombardi was born to an Italian immigrant in Brooklyn, New York, and his early life was dominated by Catholic ideology. At 15, he enrolled at the Cathedral College of Immaculate Conception, where he would study to become a priest. After two years, he transferred to St. Francis Preparatory School, where his life changed completely. Lombardi started as fullback for the football team, and eventually his talent brought him to Fordham University. After college, a short football career, and a trial law school, he moved through a few college coaching jobs, including a few seasons at Fordham. Eventually, Lombardi found himself leading the 1956 New York Giants to a championship. In 1959, he signed a five-year deal to lead the Green Bay Packers. His career brought the team 105 wins, 35 losses, and five ties, along a championship title every season from 1956 to 67. If it was not for Lombardi and his business relationship with George Hallis, who dedicated his career to building the Chicago Bears. It is not only the Packers who would not have lasted, but the NFL. Without the collaboration and formation of a rivalry sparking public interest in the early days of the sport, the chances of it lasting would have been low. So how about that? I feel like uh, it's almost like when Mike Francesa on his, uh, his popular WFA show theme, seen by hundreds, on Fox Sports 1 and 2, where he used to have this uh, his, uh, from his friend Oliver Reinhardt, the fact of the day. And so I feel a little bit like that, a little fun tidbit, you know, of course, as a Packers fan and as a New Jerseyan, big fan, legendary fan of Vince Lombardi. You know, interesting, my father loves to tell this tidbit anywhere there are Packer fans, Vince Lombardi fans, anywhere. Did you know that when you're going on the I-95 to New Jersey or the New Jersey Turnpike, one of the great highways in the country, uh, the the very if you're coming south from New York City, the very first rest area, if you go north of New York City, the last rest area is known as the Vince Lombardi Service Area. And why is that? It's because he helped uh, with part of the construction of the uh, of that rest area. It's really not a great place, right? And stretch, but hey, you know, it is a rest area. So now, uh, before we get back to the NFL, it's time for our weekly conversation with the uh, young female hitting sensation, Kendra Levesque, who, of course, won the, uh, the King of SWAT home run derby at Cooperstown and is also an all star in the Sunset Little League out in the beautiful state of. 
New Mexico. Let's take a look. She is the official title of King of SWAT after winning the being the first girl to win the Home Run Derby at the Cooperstown Dreams Park and competed with the Sparks, an all-girls team, facing the boys in that tournament. Kendra Levesque joins us here on Fanatic Radio. First, I have to say, what was that experience like being able to play with your friends in Cooperstown? Because I had a cousin who played a couple of years ago, and he said he had the time of his life for you personally, what was it like playing at the Hall of Fame of Baseball? Oh, it was amazing, especially being the only girls team out there and ranking 36 out of 104, and the whole experiences and everything, it was amazing. How did this team come to uh, come to be? Where, how did the whole idea of an all-girls team start? Uh, I think it's been going for a while, and so I think they have, like, recruiter, recruiters and everything. And so when I... Um, I was looking up something one day, and I looked up girls who play baseball, and it brought up Justine Siegel, and I emailed her that she gave me hope, and then the next day I had recruiters calling me, and so we weren't. I was gonna. I wasn't gonna play first of all, but then they said that they dropped the price, cause, and then so we did it. And so, talk about just how much the community helped, helped you guys fundraise and just got behind you for the through that entire experience. Uh, it was amazing. Like Rayleigh Homes, they did a good for me. They paid for a lot for me, and we just did local fundraisers. And one of um, our friends out here, Tino and Vanessa, they own a, a business called Jump Drive and Slide, and they did a lot for me, helping me fundraise and everything. So when you were at the tournament, what was sort of what was the best moment that you had? Uh, it was by far winning the home run derby. What was that like? It must be so so much adrenaline, so much emotion to uh, to hit all those home runs. What did it feel like for you personally, just to be able just to to beat the boys and win it in a home run derby? I honestly just wanted to make it to the final round, and when uh, the guy before me, he had four home runs. And so when I got up and I hit five, I was like, okay, I'm fine, I'm fine. So then when the last guy, he didn't hit any home runs, they, all the boys were telling me, you won, you won. And I was like, I won? And I was, yeah, I was, like, excited. It was amazing. So uh, for, you, for you personally, where did the, uh, the love of baseball come about? Was this something that you've always been playing since you were little? I've been playing it since I was four, and it was probably because my brother, he played a lot of baseball. And they always needed an extra player to play. So I'd always go to the park and play baseball with him and his friends. And he's, like, my inspiration. What, uh, what position do you play? I play pitcher first and third base. Very cool. And uh, who, are your, who are the role models? Who are the ones you, you idolize uh, through the game? Uh, I honestly, my brother and my favorite player in the MLB is Bryce Harper. Uh, yeah, because um, he's cause he's someone that uh, came out of high school when he was really young, and now he's an uh, MLB All Star playing with the Washington Nationals. Have you thought that far in the future to think, you know, what happens when when college recruiters come around? Uh, I honestly, I'll give it my all, and I I'll play as far as my abilities to take me. But I believe if I work hard, I can get to where I need to be. So what happens next? You do, you dominate the home run derby. You win the King of SWAT title. Your team is one of the best in the country in the, in the little league stage. What's next? What's next for your baseball career? 
Um, I want to try out for the high school baseball team. All right, and um, and are there any certain uh, certain rituals you have? Any uh, superstitions that you have playing the game of baseball? Because we see that all the time with with hitters going through slumps, even as far as guys wearing the same underwear for certain days. Are there any certain rituals that you have? Uh, sort of a quirky things that keep you uh, keep you consistent? Sort of the superstitions through baseball. Whenever I get up to bat, I don't. It's like a habit. Whenever I get up to bat, I always like touch my helmet. It's just a habit, and I guess that's one of my superstitions because I always do it when I get up to bat. It's very cool, and we'll get you out of here on this, Kendra. Watching the, the Little League World Series, we we saw uh, Monet Davis really take take the world, uh, the country uh, by surprise, seeing that she was throwing seventy mile an hour curveballs. Uh, for you, as someone playing in the Little League. The, the uh, ter- division of baseball. What does it mean for for you girls to know that you guys can actually play can play with the best in the country in baseball, and not only just play, but as you've proven, beat uh, beat them and even be the best. Well, it's amazing. Well, for some of us, we have to work twice as hard since we're girls, and some people are going to doubt us that we can't play. But we'll we'll just go out there and prove them wrong, like Monet Davis did. She's amazing too. Oh, you as well. I think that was awesome that you won the uh, the King of SWAT title, beating 103 boys in a home run derby. It was awesome. <laughs> How big's the trophy? It was uh, like two and a half feet. <laughs> That's awesome. Cherish that forever. She's Kendra Levesque from Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Fans, make sure to keep an eye on her because winning the King of SWAT title, it shows that she is no pushover. She is indeed for real, and she joined us here on Fanatic Radio. Kendra, thank you once again for taking the time to join thank us. Thank you. And how about that? Besides, first off, we do love Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Heck of a town. I've, I've never actually been, but I'm assuming that is great. A great interview by Mike, who, of course, is at the, uh, the Red Bull Air Race. Texas Motor Speedway back at his old stomping ground. Let's get back to a little uh, NFL predictions preview, if you will, and we'll also talk a little college football, the week that was, the week that will be coming up. You know, you look at this, uh, you look at the NFL, and there's, I think that I read personally, for what it's worth, I know people uh, can can, uh, live, uh, stick their lives on whatever I predict for the NFL, but I really think that, as I was saying, alluding to earlier, the NFC, in my opinion, is certainly the stronger conference. I mean, yes, the AFC's got their strong clubs, but I think the NFC has got more teams that could be that super, potential Super Bowl champion, Seattle, San Francisco. Oh, I think I could see San Francisco taking a step back. Green Bay, of course, they didn't look so sharp last night. Uh, uh, you know, New Orleans Saints, but also I'm going to throw a team out there. I feel Philadelphia Eagles can be uh, a stronger club than some were realized in the postseason. I mean, virtually a lot of people are picking them to win the NFC East, although not all of them, of course. But, uh, you know, everyone was talking about how their offense was tremendous last year. 
can their offense possibly be as good this year and as they were last year? Will defenses finally catch up with them? And I say no, because Chip Kelly is always on the cutting edge, it looks like. And, yeah, Nick Foles is not going to play as well as he did last year. I can um, I can confirm with you on that. He'll look if he's taking basket weaving. He's going to make $120 million next year. And, but, and Foles, but Foles, I think, is a good fit for the scheme. And I think that you look at the Philadelphia defense, it's better than what people realize. The defense was actually solid last year, and especially it played well down the stretch. Of course, they had times where they gave up many, many, many points to a Vikings club that was uh, being quarterbacked by the immortal um, Matt Castle. But I think that Philadelphia, uh, I don't think they're Super Bowl team, but I think they can win a few games in this postseason. So, so now in the AFC, we, it would be a good idea to talk about some teams. Possibly that could be on the upswing, as well as some teams that uh, may uh, may have some higher expectations but could possibly disappoint. I think that you look at teams that uh, could possibly break through. Um, San Diego Chargers played very well down the stretch, had a lot of luck to get to the playoffs, namely the Miami Dolphins losing both the last two games against teams that were pretty mediocre last year, the Buffalo Bills and the New York Jets, including seven points combined. The Chargers and also were benefited by a penalty that should have been called against them when Ryan Suckup missed a, you know, not that long of a field goal. A uh, kicker like him should have made, considering that these kickers, they should have made every field goal, just about. I think the San Diego club, I think they could definitely be a playoff team. I think the defense, they got some help at the secondary with a brand felt take uh, signing in the free agency. He disappointed last year in Kansas City, but he wasn't a great for the Bob Sutton scheme. Uh, and they also drafted uh, Jason Barrett out of uh, Texas Christian University, which, of course, was Mike Gardner's uh, neck of the woods and uh, the Lone Star State. And I think the Panthers will be key if they get Dwight pretty healthy. Get you other know, guys healthy, get some line. I really like what Philip Rivers did last year. He really resurrects his career because a lot of people were down on him. I wasn't as down as him, of course, as most people were because, you know. You might want to put this in the mail before you go to jail. But Rivers really had a great year last year. Keenan Allen was sensational as a rookie back. Um,. And Ryan Matthews finally was healthy for them, had a, uh, had a very good year for over 1,200 yards. If he could stay healthy, which has always been the big gift for them. San Diego is a club that, you know, they always give Denver trouble, and they gave Denver a little bit of a fight in the, uh, the divisional round after they smoked the Cincinnati Bengals, a team that uh, in the AFC Tech could kick it back. Uh, I think it's a division mate, the Kansas City Chiefs. They played very well. Last year, early on, they start they started nine and zero, but they also only finished two and five. Their schedule got a little tougher, and it was also worrisome how the wild card game against the Colts in Indianapolis. They got to that huge lead at halftime. Alex Smith was playing great. The defense completely fell apart. It was a fiasco. One of the biggest comebacks. One of the biggest choke jobs ever. Like, Kansas City has been a very long time since they won a playoff team. Now, this year, they lost a lot of people in their offensive line. The defense has lost players as well. 
Lost a lot of free agency, didn't bring that much in. I didn't love what they did in the draft either. I look at this Kansas City club, I think they're weaker at, uh, at the wide receiver position as well. I'm not a big fan of Dwayne Bow. I think he's a uh, little uh, past the speed. Yeah. They're going to lose Jackson in the cluster. There's going to be a lot of pressure on Alchemist, who just got money. He's got a nice little contract extension. A lot of pressure on him to make plays and act like the franchise quarterback and play like that he can. Because Jamal Charles is sensational, but he can only do so much. Eventually, Alex Smith has got to be that guy. I think they're bound to take a step back. They're not going to be worse than the Raiders. I'll give you that. If they're worse than the Oakland Raiders, we've got some serious problems. But I think Kansas City is bound to take a little step back in the AFC, the NFC. You know, you look at there's a number of clubs that I kind of like. Uh, perhaps the team, the, there are some teams that were on the cusp of making the playoffs. The Arizona Cardinals last year were very close to making the playoffs. I don't think they're going to be that. Uh, I think they're not going to be as close as they were because they lost some players defensively, particularly Daryl Washington, uh, the great lineman, Darnell Dockett is hurt as well. So, and while Bruce Arians is a great coach, it looks like he's got a very good quarter. You know, I, I shouldn't say Carson Palmer's very good But Carson Palmer played pretty well for them last year when they needed to him. He did make, you know, take some chances down the field. But all in all, it was a good year for Palmer. But I don't think they're going to be as close. Uh, I think that one team that can go make the leap from uh, – there are a couple teams that I think they can make the level from, you know, crap last year. So making this a uh, big step forward, maybe into the playoffs, both in the NFC South, uh, the, Car- the, uh, not the, Carolina, the Atlanta Falcons, who fell apart, Julio Jones was hurt last year. The offensive line was a fiasco. The defensive pass rush wasn't good at all. And they suffered a lot of injuries, and they took a big step back. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, very talented team, but struggled with Greg Schiano coaching them they're like they're a bunch of high schoolers instead of, you know, multimillion-dollar athletes. Not saying you should call them, but not treat them like, you know, you're a high school football coach, not even college. But I think Tampa Bay, you know, they got a new quarterback in Joshua Town. They got big receivers, Vincent Jackson and Mike Evans, the rookie at Texas A&M. There's a lot of talent on the team. I've seen a lot of people possibly pick them to win the NFC South. I don't know about that. But I think that um, that's certainly something that's uh, interesting to watch. And I think the Atlanta Falcons as well. I think I'm still concerned. I like their, I think the offensive line will be better with uh, Jake Matthews. But, um, so, and I think, and I think their cash rush, I'm still concerned. They, they made a lot of upgrades to their defensive line, but I think they could take a step. Uh, I don't think their pass rush is good enough to put them in the playoffs. Seems like we got a caller here. Welcome to the uh, Fanatic Radio Show, sir. Hey, guys. You ever rip out one of your curly pubes and use it as floss in between your teeth? Motherfuckers. Well, I don't know about that. I apologize for the uh, vulgarity from whatever the heck that was. So that's uh, my apologies. It was... uh, Raider Nation something. I don't know what that number was, so we're just going to slide on for that. A team, I think, in the NFC that will take a big step back, some of the Kansas City Chiefs, the Carolina Panthers. They made a big step last year, went 12-4, and four, had a slow start, but 
really played great down the stretch. I think that you look at the team, though, they suffered a, they lost a lot because of their cap situation. The receivers are a fiasco. They weren't even that great that receiver last year, but now Cam Newton has got virtually nothing. Kelvin Benjamin, the rookie from Florida State, is going to have to come in, and he's very raw, and he doesn't have great hands, and he never really ran any roots at Florida State, but he's going to have to come in, be a big contributor uh, right away. The defense will be good, but I don't like the running game. I think the Carolina Panthers are going to take a step backwards. So for your NFL predictions for the rest of the season, we'll look at uh, uh, talk about a little about week one as well. But I think going forward, your Super Bowl, in my opinion, is going to be the New England Patriots. You know, we, we had the uh, Tom Brady audio earlier. I think it's going to be the New England Patriots, and I think the New Orleans Saints, actually, are going to be in the Super Bowl at the University of Phoenix in February. will be on NBC. And my Super Bowl prediction will be... Lucky. The New Orleans Saints. I think the New Orleans Saints are going to defeat the New, uh, New England Patriots. I think they will be your Super Bowl champions. We're looking at the, some week one games. You know, I did have the Seahawks. You can check out my well, not only this, this podcast on iTunes, but also on Depot 360. You can check out my info prediction, Depot360.com. I had the Seahawks winning last night. Yes, I am a uh, Packer fan, so call me a traitor, whatever you want. There's not that many great games on the docket, quite frankly. I think the best games are Saints-Falcons. I think you're going to get a lot of offense there in the Georgia Dome. I like New Orleans. Uh, 49ers-Cowboys. The Cowboys' defense is going to be a complete fiasco this year. You got one of the worst defensive lines I've ever seen. And while the offense is good, Tony Romo is a solid quarterback. Jamarco Murray, when he's out, he's a very good running back. And Jez Bryant, one of the finest receivers in the NFL. So they can only do so much with a fiasco of defense. I like the 49ers. So I think about to take a step back. On the road, you got uh, Sunday night game, Colts-Broncos. Uh, the Peyton Manning Bowl Part 2, and I like the Peyton Manning crew, the Broncos, to get to win, uh, avenge their loss uh, last year in Indianapolis. Now they're a mile high. I think they're going to win that game. You, you now, after a college football week one, where not that many great games going on last week, but we also had a number of interesting results, namely some some games that were a little closer than folks thought. Oklahoma State, I have to give it to them, gave it to Florida State all game, and they had chances to win that game late, but they couldn't get it done. And West Virginia against Alabama, I thought Alabama was going to smoke them. They, West, of West Virginia club, the offense was very good. Defense was not great, and that's going to be an issue. But the offense was very sharp. And we've come to expect that out of Dana, Dana Holgerson club. So, I think that, um, you know, Holgerson, you know, he had some good offense, but they, the West Virginia cannot pull the upset either. But beyond that, not that many exciting games where you have or the consensus top two teams in the country uh, struggling uh, to put away teams that they're likely thought to be fair. Then you have the Texas A&M South Carolina showdown at Williams-Brice Stadium in Columbia. Texas A&M with Kenny Trill replacing the aforementioned Johnny Manziel was fantastic as they went into a South Carolina team, as we talked about this last week, and they smoked it. 
Again, not many big games on the docket this week in the world of college football. You got a lot of uh, FBS, FBS matchups. Uh, so one of the big games, for, uh, USC and Stanford. That's on ABC at 3:30 tomorrow. Uh, a lot of people going with uh, uh, you know always a rock solid Stanford club, but I like this USC team. I think they're going to go in after all the distractions they've suffered through in the offseason, the reasons we talked about it last week. I think Cody Custer's going to have a big game. I think USC is going to get the upset. But what has to be the biggest game, the only match of the top 10 teams, top 7 teams, and a match that will play a big role in the college football playoff down the road, and yes, it's still taking a little bit of getting used to the thing we have a college football playoff. The Michigan State you got Sparty going into Alton Stadium in Eugene, Oregon, taking on the Oregon Ducks. Uh, Sparty's defense will, could very well be the best defense Oregon sees all year. Connor Kirk is a very good quarterback for the Spartans. Spart- but I still think the offensive firepower and the, the tremendous Marcus Mariota are going to lead Oregon. They have the big um, – they do have a home field event. very tough to win at Alton. I like Oregon to beat uh, Michigan State. There you have a look, a look, at, a look ahead. Like the week that is college football. He'll look sure. if he's taking basket weaving. He's going to make $120 million next year. Uh, pardon me, the wrong uh, audio clip I meant to play there. I'm going to actually do that again. Okay, he doesn't belong in college for two minutes, no less one year. You know... We're going to change gears once more for the last few minutes of the show. We're going to talk a little about Team USA. I don't know if you've been following. FIBA World Cup has been going on. The USA uh, will uh, play tomorrow against uh, Mexico, the round of 16 in Spain. And what's interesting about Team USA is that they have several games where they've been dominant, but particularly they've had games against Turkey and Ukraine. Uh, a lot of these games for Team USA, which has been a little worrisome, they've been um, a little slow start for Team USA. Uh, oh, my goodness. Not USC or UCLA. Team USA. And, in fact, when they were playing Turkey, they were, uh, you know, they struggled in the first quarter, the same, similar to the Ukraine. They struggled in the halftime, and, you know, they're still tight games. Of course, they eventually pulled it away. But Team USA, it's a very – even with all the players that have left and the, some of the questionable guys that have left off the team, and Daniel Lillard, if you will, among other guys, they still have – they've got good big men, but they're not deep at big men. Uh, they have guards, uh, a lot of guards, you know, Steph Curry, James Harden, Derek Rose, Polo Flash, Kyrie Irving, Clay Thompson. But the defensive effort at times from that backcourt and those guys, it hasn't been great either. You know, I think that you look at Team USA, and especially when they get deeper now, they're in the round 16. They're playing Mexico tomorrow. That game will be at 10 a.m. ESPN 2. So if you're not into – College game day. You want to uh, get your basketball fix tomorrow? A little uh, basketball tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Well, I think this you. Oh my! Goodness. 
this USA team, I, with how they've struggled at times against teams that, let's be honest, are inferior. Turkey and Ukraine are not bad. They're clearly inferior to the US, to USA, but the USA has only really had one dominant game, and that was uh, against Finland where they dominated throughout. They got to a big lead early. You know, Turkey or Finland made some shots early, but of course they weren't able to the thing, especially after Finland scored a hearty uh, two points, no field goals in the second uh, quarter. You, 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 F-A. Team USA. So they should smoke Mexico, but if they struggle against a team that they are clearly superior to in the Mexican, I think that it's going to be very tough for Team USA. And yes, I didn't get correct that time on the first try. <laughs> Pardon me, but it's going to be it's going to be interesting for Team USA to win it all again. But uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Fanatic Radio. Uh, Mike will be back next week. We will see you next time. So long, everybody. Enjoy your week.